0: Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries Podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries Podcast. John chapter six, beginning in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and to, and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a, storm, a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. And Lord, we thank you just for... Your love for us, Lord, and as the song we were singing just a moment ago reflects, Lord, there's, there's nothing in me that deserves what you have done for me. But I praise you that in spite of me, you have made a way that I can be re- reconciled to you. And I pray, Father, for those who are lost in this place or those who are lost that will hear this later, Lord, that they will come to understand that their only hope for eternity is Christ and that they would bow their knee to him. We ask today, Lord, that you would give us insight into your word and open our minds uh, so that we can uh, comprehend the truth of it, Lord, and we can see the magnitude of who you are and what it is that you are, you are doing in redemptive history. And just help us to be different because we've been under the truth of your word today, Lord, and we will live differently. And as always, Lord, uh, use this feeble Vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are to the walking on the water that Jesus does in John chapter 6. Last time we saw Jesus uh, feed over 20,000 people uh, a miracle that's in all four gospels, one that God had intended for us to make sure we took note of. Uh, This one is in three of the four gospels that we read about uh, today. And so One of the things I think we need to do to be able to understand the full scope of what's going on in this miracle is for us to bring in those other two accounts in Matthew and Mark to to make sense of the full picture of what's happening. So I've given you uh, a paper, or at least hopefully you got one, where I have done my best to compile those three accounts into one account and kind of putting the the words where they need to be to fit in with where john is what john is talking about and what, what I want to do, if you will indulge me uh, just a moment, is to read back through this again, but with that um, you know, harmony uh, put together. Once we read through this, our goal is to work through this text, the one that I've given you, kind of the harmonization of all these accounts in John and Matthew and Mark. And we're gonna look at it basically by way of four headings. First, uh, we're gonna talk about faithfulness over the frenzy. Then we're gonna talk about faithfulness in the fight. Then we're going to talk about faithfulness in the face of fear. And then faithfulness in the fire fuels fervent worship. So if you would, read along with me as we read this harmony again so we kind of get the full picture of this miracle of Jesus walking on the water and what happened uh, with the disciples all along the way. Verse 15, I'm starting with John. The The black words are in John. The red are Matthew and the blue are Mark if you're interested in that kind of thing. Perceiving then that they were about to come to take him by force to make him king, Immediately, he made the disciples go into a boat and and before him uh, to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowds, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself to pray. When when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. It It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a storm, uh, a strong wind was blowing. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He, He meant to pass them by. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and came near the boat. And they were frightened and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But he said to them, it is I, I do not, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So let's begin walking through this text. First, we'll look at this faithfulness over frenzy. If you go back to John chapter uh, six, verse 15, Jesus, at the end of that miracle, where he fed over 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, the people were amazed by this. And so they decided they wanted to make him king by force. Well, here's what I wrote down. This is what the people saw, I think. Just kind of put myself back where they were. What, What were the people thinking? Why were they wanting to make Jesus king? Now, when we get to the other side of chapter six, we're going to understand that they didn't really understand who Jesus was as Messiah, but what were they thinking? I think that they had just seen a man who had done a miracle that impacted more people than they had ever seen at one time. 20,000 people plus probably were fed that day from a meager lunch from a little boy, right? They had already seen Jesus healing people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They, they, they I'm sure they knew about what Jesus did at, at the pool of Bethsaida where the, the paralytic was healed. They probably had heard how Jesus just spoke the word and the, the ruler's the child was healed. The disciples had already seen you know, the, the, water, the water into wine, but Jesus was healing almost every disease that they could think of. And then he provided this kind of food. What an amazing person to go and say, you need to be our king. Because what were the people wanting? They were looking for Messiah and there's no doubt about that. That's why God in this moment in time sent the son. That's why John the Baptist came. There was anticipation for Messiah, but what were the Jews wanting the Messiah to do? To come, reestablish the throne of David, raise Israel back up to its prominence in the days of David and Solomon and get rid of the power and oppression of the Romans. And what better person to do that than a person who could lead them. And if people were on the battlefield and they got, they got injured, well, he could heal them. Or if they were out there and they were hungry, he could feed them. He, had, he, could, he could take care of all the provisions they needed. It was almost like they could have a king who could meet every need they ever wanted and they would be invincible. Now, that's just me kind of thinking in their shoes to force him. To be the king. Well, here's what the people failed to see, I think. They failed to see that Jesus was already king. You know, I've told you before, and again, I borrowed this from Bodhi Baccham, God's not running for God. Well, Jesus is not running for king. Jesus is already king. He was already king then. He was already king before the foundations of the world. Psalm chapter two, what did God say in Psalm Two, not Psalm chapter two, but Psalm two. What did God say? God says, I have established my king in Zion. Jesus is king. They didn't understand that the kingdom of God was already at hand. Mark chapter one. You remember what Jesus said? The first thing that Mark records Jesus saying after John the Baptist was fading off the scene and Jesus was coming to his public ministry. Jesus says, repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand they were still waiting for a kingdom and they were still waiting for a king. God has always been king. Christ has always been king and his kingdom has always been at work. The same is true for you and me today, right? We we don't have to wait for a king to come because he already is. Right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Right now, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Yeah, he's coming back one day, but he's already king. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Does that change how we live in this world today? as those who claim to be followers of Christ, knowing that we are sojourners in this world and that we serve a king who is enthroned, who is above every other political leader in this world, do we bow our knee to him daily, understanding that and live in light of his authority in our life? Hopefully that you do. If not, today is the day you need to bow your knee to Jesus Christ. You don't make him Lord and Savior. He already is Lord and Savior. You understand that? He is the great I am. And the people didn't get that. They didn't understand that. Another thing that I think we need to see in this, and we see it in other places in the scripture, but we must obey God rather than man, right? What did Jesus tell them already? You remember in chapter five, he already has given a defense of who he is, his divinity and his authority to do what it is he's doing because the religious leaders are questioning that, right? And Jesus, you remember, he made this odd statement in chapter five. He says, if I bear witness of myself, then it's not true. And what was the implication? He says, there's someone in heaven, the father who is bearing witness of me and these works that I'm doing, they are the works of the father and they're bearing witness of me. What was Jesus saying? I didn't come to do the will of the people. I come to do the will the father sent me to do. And that will was to save a people to myself. That will was to go to a cross and to suffer on their behalf and to bear the wrath for their sin to bear the guilt and the shame of it and make a way for them to be reconciled to the Father for all of eternity. He came to do the will of the Father. We ought to be about doing the will of God every day of our life, no matter where it is, no matter what circumstance we're in, when it relates to how we, who it is we're going to marry, when it relates to how we're gonna raise our children, when it relates to how, where we go to school, why we go to school, Everything we do in life ought to be weighed against the will of God for our life. How do we find God's will for our life? One way we find it is right here in this book, right? Be students of this book. God gives, hey, there are plenty of things in this book that God is point blank about. He is specific, there's no question. You don't have to read between lines, you don't have to guess. He says, this is what I want you to do. So at least in those areas, we can be consistent in doing what it is we know God wants us to do wherever we are. We've got to come to the place where we understand that we are Christians first. We are children of God first. And everything else in our life ought to align around that central truth. And that will change the way we live. We ought to be obedient to the Lord. Another thing I thought about in this, it really comes from Matthew, because Matthew tells us why Jesus goes to the mountain. He goes to the mountain to pray. Isn't that amazing? After this miraculous event, Jesus goes back to retreat to himself and to spend time in prayer. How important is prayer for the believer? If our Lord and Savior did this not just one time, over and over again we read about him getting alone by himself to pray. How important should prayer be in our life? Paul tells us we ought to pray without ceasing. The question is to me how do we do that, right? Do we go around mumbling to ourselves and people think we're crazy people? Cuz we're always praying without ceasing. I know you've done it before, right? We we've driven down the road and we're praying. Maybe you're doing it moving your mouth, right? Maybe you're doing it just in your head. But the idea is to be in an attitude of prayer all the time. And before everything we do, we ought to pray. We ought to consult with the Father. We ought to hear from the Spirit, right? How important is prayer in your life, in my life? And sometimes I think we have this idea that, you know, maybe if I keep doing this, that I'm hounding God. You ever felt that way? I just keep going back to him with the same old thing over and over again. I know he's getting tired of hearing me say that, right? Now, we may think that way as human parents, right, sometimes when our kids come back and nod again with the same thing. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 6? Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. Those are all participles in the great. Continually do that. That's what God wants from you. If it's on your heart and if it's on your mind, keep going. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. What's the Bible remind us in another place? If we diligently Seek him, what will happen? We'll find him. Isn't that amazing? God God is not playing hide and seek from us. He's not making it difficult in, in our being able to find him. He says, if you seek me, you will find me. So I'd implore you to seek the Lord in whatever decision it is, in whatever the circumstance is. To make prayer paramount in, your, paramount in your life. Faithfulness over frenzy. That's where Jesus was. He, he, didn't, he didn't cater to the crowds. He was faithful to the will of the Father. May we be the same. The second portion uh, begins in John chapter 6, verse 16. And then I have woven in the other two. Faithfulness in the fight. This is where we see the disciples get in the boat says, when evening came, his disciples, in verse 16, went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, Jesus had compelled them to get in this boat. We've already learned that. He encouraged them to go get in this boat while he went to the mountain to see, to pray. And so they went... at, and he said to, they were, he saw, rather, they were making headway painfully. In other words, they were struggling against the waves. They were fighting with every ounce of their being to make an inch in this water because a storm had come up. Now, here's the scene. It was dark, and Jesus had not come to them yet. We, we learned earlier, or we learned in other place, it, it, it was evening, so you, you think in your mind, it, it's probably you know getting close around six o'clock, in the evening, darkness is starting to descend upon them, and the wind began to blow. And about the fourth watch, so Mark has included something that's very very important for us. See, we'll overlook that if we don't think about it and understand what's happening. Here's, here's what the disciples experienced. They just got through this magnificent miracle with a crowd of people and Jesus had just fed every single one of them not to where they were just satisfied but they were filled to their full and they collected 12 baskets of fragments left over. And they were coming off that high, right? Now Jesus tells them I'm gonna go up here and pray and I want y'all to get in the boat and start going across the water. Well, these are most of these are fishermen and they understood, understood what might happen. Because the Sea of Galilee is depends on who you read Roughly, on average, about 700 feet below sea level. And there are mountains on either side of this sea, this lake, really, real big lake, about seven miles, I think, across at the widest part. There are mountains on either side. I think on the east side, maybe 2,000 is the highest elevation, elevation. and on the west side, about 1,200, 1,500. Is the highest. And what happens is all that, all that cold air comes down to this valley, 700 feet below sea level, hits this hot air, and it raises up a big storm, right? We experienced that in, in the south, right? Cool air, hot air, thunderstorm, tornadoes, all that kind of stuff. But they would have these storms that would pop up. And they understood this. And I can imagine they probably had a little bit of dread of getting on the water at night just because of that reason. Not that they hadn't experienced it before, but that's where they were. They were in the boat. A storm had come up, and it was beating, it was beating them to death. And they were working hard. They didn't have, you know, uh, an engine on the back of that thing. They, they, they were rowing, and they were fighting these waves with everything that they had. This started when it was evening, when it was getting dark about 6 o'clock. Now, the Romans had divided the night into four watches. One watch started at six, one watch started at nine, one watch started at midnight, and one watch started at three in the morning, three to to six that morning. They started at evening. Now, Mark tells us it was about the fourth watch, which started at three o'clock in the morning. They started at six o'clock in the evening, probably. If you give them the benefit of the doubt and say it was nine o'clock at the end of that first evening watch, You still had at least six to eight hours that these guys had been on this water rowing this boat. Can you imagine that? We don't get the full flavor if we don't read all of that. It wasn't that they just got in the boat and they were out there for a few hours. No, they'd been out there all night long fighting against this wind and against these waves, struggling, and they'd only gone three or four miles. The whole thing ain't but seven, and they'd only gone three or four. So this wind was beating the devil out of them. You ever been in that place in your life where you've been struggling? That life's been just whooping you, beating you down. I guarantee every one of us have in some way, right? Some of us have different, stronger storms than others. But all of us have been in a storm in our life, literally. And figuratively, right? How do you deal with that? These guys just kept on rowing. It's interesting. Jesus was on the mountain. And Jesus was looking. And the Bible tells us that he looked down and saw that they were making headway, but they were doing it painfully. Inch by inch. And that ought to be encouraging to us. All right? He knows the struggle that you're in. He knows the pain that you're facing. He knows right where you are in the difficulty. He hadn't forgot about you. He hadn't overlooked you. He knows where you are. You remember, those who were in Sunday school last, I think week, last week or week before last, we talked about that shield where God says, I am your shield. What better shield to have than God, right? Well, the implication we made in Sunday school was, if anything comes through that shield, it's because God let it come through that shield. So these, this struggle that these disciples were in, God knew they were in it. And he was watching them in it. And he's supposed to come do something about it. But I thought about this. A lot of times, obedience, because what did Jesus tell them to do? Go down and get in the boat. I'm sure they wanted to be with Jesus. He said, go get in the boat and go across. They got in the boat and they went across. What did that obedience lead them to? A difficult journey. Sometimes obedience leads us to a difficult journey. (laughs) We don't want to hear that, right, today. We we, we want to hear, you know, Every Christian ought to be a millionaire and God's gonna take the, the, the money from the, the wicked and give it to the righteous, right? That's the kind of stuff we wanna hear, right? We wanna hear that's gonna be cake and ice cream and all the, you know, fun things we wanna do. Well, let me ask you about a few folks. What what about Daniel? What did obedience get Daniel? We got him my lines, then, didn't it? Now, now, God, granted, saved him out of the lion's den. But he got him a lion's den. What did obedience get, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Got him a fiery furnace. Now, God, granted, God saved them out of the fiery furnace. What did obedience and faithfulness to God get old Joseph when he was going to Egypt? Got him a rough road, didn't it? Till the end. Joseph said the most profound thing that we could learn about what God is doing in our life when he said to his brothers what you meant for evil God meant it for good I don't care where you are what you're going through here's what God has promised you as his child he says to us through Paul in Romans chapter 8 all things work together for the good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Do you believe that today? Even the struggles in your life, do you believe that God can use those to work together for your good? And what's the ultimate good that's gonna be worked together for you? When your faith becomes sight? When your hope becomes a reality? Let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer out loud, just ponder it. What if God hadn't saved Daniel from the lion's den? You think God was still working for his good? What if God hadn't saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace? You think God was still working for his good? What about Job? That is the most intriguing story in the Bible when it comes to something like this. Because Job went through a struggle because God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then God allowed Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life. He lost his children. He lost his wife. He lost everything he had. Now God blessed him on the back end of that more than he had before. But does that ease the pain of the loss he had earlier? You think he still grieved over the loss of his children? I just want us to understand that even though we go down a difficult road, and obedience to God is going to sometimes cause us to walk a, different, a difficult path. And maybe that path is a lifetime. God is still good. And the thing that we can take courage in is that if we are his children, that what is going on in our life didn't take him by surprise. He knows where we are. And if that's true, then he's got a purpose for it. And let me ask you another question. What if my suffering, however great it may be, or minuscule it may be, what if my suffering God can use to bring another person to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Is my suffering worth that? Well, absolutely it is. Now I get it. That's easy preaching and hard living right there but I know that no matter what happens to me in this world, that it cannot compare to what God has in store for me, right? And if someone else can come to faith in Christ and be saved from the wrath that is to come, I don't like what I have to say, but Lord, if that means I have to suffer for them to get that place. Let me remember what you told Paul, your grace is sufficient. For me. All right. Faithfulness in the fight. Please just do the third one. Gotta hurry up. Faithfulness in the face of fear. Starting in verse 20 in, in John chapter 6 and then all the rest of that's Matthew. But he said to them, you know, because he, he, he's walking on the water now, right? He's coming to them on the water. Now, it's interesting. I don't have time to, 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 to think about this today, but it's interesting what Mark said because Mark says his intention was to pass them by as if to just walk on by. Just ponder that. Right? That's, some, that's something to think about, right? Well, what was his intention on that? But anyway, uh, here he walks on the water. They see him. Now, here's what the disciples were not ready for. They, they might have understood a storm may come, but something they probably never seen on the water, in the dark, in the storm, is somebody walking on it. That's why they cried out. It is a ghost, right? It, this, is, this, this is something we ain't never seen before. Lord, you gotta, you, you know, they, uh, they probably cried out to God. You gotta help us. Who is this that's coming after us, right? And what does Peter do? Peter's an amazing guy, isn't he? He shows amazing faith. And then spectacular doubt, all in the same moment, <laughs> doesn't he? He says, to, he says to him, when Jesus says, hey, don't fear, it's me. Think about that for a moment. You're, again, I'm, I'm rambling right in a second. But think about this idea of don't be afraid, it's me. How many times does Jesus talk about that in God's word in the New Testament? Let not your heart be troubled. Again, that's easy preaching hard living. Because we live in a state of trouble a lot of times, don't we? We're always worried about the unknown. We're always worried about the what if. And usually when we get to the other side of it, the what if is not as bad as what we thought it might be that we were worrying about, right? But what does Jesus say? He says, worry can't add one inch to your stature. Essentially he's saying, just trust me. Don't fret. And again, he's a preaching, hard living. And then Peter says, hey Lord, if it is you, then let me, command me, he says, <laughs> to come out of this boat and walk to you. Why did he say it like that, you reckon? Command me to do it. I think he said it because he done, he's already seen Jesus command some things to happen, and they happen. And so he says, Lord, if you say it, I, I believe I can do it. And so Jesus commanded him to come out, and he walked on the water. Can you imagine that? Walking on the water, adrenaline flowing, seeing Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he remembered where he was. On the water, right? <laughs> You're not supposed to be able to do this on the water. In the midst of the storm, still going. The winds are still blowing. It's still beating against the boat. Probably laughing up. You ever been to the beach, right? And you see the wave come in and it about knocks you down? I don't know how the crests were on the Sea of Galilee that night, but they probably were laughing up a little higher than he wanted them to. And he began to look at the circumstances around him, didn't he? took his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to sink. Boy, how many times we do that in our life. Look at the circumstances around us, take our eyes off of Jesus, and feel like we're being crushed under the weight of the pressure of life. Again, I know easy preaching, hard living, what I'm saying today. But here's what Jesus is saying to to us. Same thing he says to Peter. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes focused on Christ not the circumstances. Does that mean the waves won't still hit you? Nope, they'll still hit you, sometimes. But I think we can make it through those circumstances with our eyes centered on Christ. Peter began to sing, what does he do? He does what we all will have to do. He says, Lord, save me, right? Because he was the only one who could save him. What about you today? Have you said that today? Have you called out to him today? Lord, save me. Have you ever called out to him in your life? Lord, save me. That's what has to happen for you. That's your only hope for eternity, is that he saves you. He's already made the way. He's already paid the price. He's already dealt with your problem. All you have to do is believe. Trust. That's all. And he'll save you. Another thing I think that is encouraging to to us in this narrative Jesus was close to them in the storm. He he never took his eye off of them. He knew where they were. He was walking near the boat, the Bible says. They were able to see him. He promised us that in, in the Great Commission, didn't he? He promised that to us, not just them. But to us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will be with us always. And he sent us a guarantee to that, hadn't he? It's called the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who lives inside of every person who who is a believer in Jesus Christ. He is near you and with you, no matter what the circumstances are. And then... How many times have you been where Peter is? Oh, you uh, of little faith. Why did you doubt? The question that came to my mind is, is how, how do we doubt God today in our life? How do you doubt God daily in your life? You don't have to answer that here, but maybe there's something we ought to ponder in our life. What, what things in my life demonstrate I have a lack of faith and that God is able to do and provide and care? I can't answer that for you. I can only look at my life and answer that for me. May God help us to be people, you know, like the man. Lord, I have faith, but strengthen what little bit of faith I do have, right? Strengthen my faith, Lord. All right, that lead us to the last portion. We'll be out of here. Faithfulness in the fire fuels fervent worship. Listen to what happens to these guys in this boat. Verse 21 in John chapter six again. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And when they got into the boat, this is Matthew, the wind ceased. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Man, they have been fighting all night long, right? Six, eight hours if the math is right. And when Jesus comes into that boat, the wind stops immediately and the boat's at its destination. He saw them through the storm. Now, it, it may not go that way for you every time, but the implication is that we serve a God who, is even, who even has the power and the ability to command the wind and the wave. We see it in another story in the, in the Gospels, right? When the storm is up and he's, Jesus is asleep in the bow and the disciples say, hey, you're not worried about this? We're about to die. And Jesus gets up and says, peace, be still. But it was crystal clear. You know, what Jesus is saying that same thing to you today. Whatever your storm is, whatever your circumstances are, Jesus is saying to your spirit, peace, be still. Why? Because he has given us his peace. He's left us his peace. And while the winds may rage, we can be like Jesus and walk calmly in the midst of the storm. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And what did they do? They worshipped him. And they said, truly, you are the son of God. What a powerful declaration. Now that comes from Matthew. But what's John's purpose for writing this book? That we will know that Jesus is the son of God. And they worshipped him. A lot of times, trials will cause us to go into a deep place of worship to the Lord. And sometimes, I heard one guy say it like this, sometimes comfort comes in the midst of the storm rather than instead of the storm. Isn't that amazing? And even in the midst of trial, God can bring comfort and peace. And that ought to cause us to worship him with every fiber of our being. Because he is able. Again, I probably use this more often than I should, but hey, it's God's word, so you can't go wrong using God's word, right? Even if you use the same ones over and over again. But it, 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 I couldn't help but think about Psalm 23. You know, we, we always think about it a lot of times when it comes to death, and, and I have used it on more than one occasion for a funeral. But I couldn't help but thinking about the God, the good shepherd, when I thought about this trial and this struggle that they were in, and maybe the trial and the struggles that you are in or that you may face in your life. And what does David say when he writes this psalm? The, the thesis sentence in Psalm 23 is The Lord is my shepherd. And then he declares some things. He says, Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because God provides my needs for me. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not fear. Why? Because he's with me in the midst of the deepest, darkest valley of my life. And because the Lord is my shepherd, I will dwell forever in the house of the Lord. Isn't that powerful? And he says, It's because you are with me, God. It's because your rod and your staff they comfort me. It's because you prepare a table for me in the face of my enemies. And it's because you pursue me. I love the way that that Psalm 23 ends. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't that that gel with what Paul says in Romans 8? All things work together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Maybe today you find yourself like the disciples in the midst of a struggle in life. You need to know the Savior's watching you. You need to know that you need to be faithful and obedient to him even in the midst of that struggle. You need to know that he is with you and he's going to come and give you peace in the midst of the storm. He may even remove the storm altogether, altogether, but even in the midst of it, he can bring you peace today. And you need to know that even if your faith wavers, he's there to pull you up, right? And strengthen you. Today, do you know that Savior? Do you live in light of who that Savior is today in your life? If not, today's the day of salvation. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the time that we can have together in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the demonstration of your power and your love and your authority in this world and in our lives. We thank you for this illustration of how that even in the midst of difficult times, we can trust you. And we thank you, Lord, that you have loved us in such a way that you have made it possible for us to be reconciled to the Father, that you have covered over our guilt, that you have borne our sin, and that if we would but trust you, we can be clothed in your righteousness. And so, Lord, for those who are in this place today who haven't done that, I pray, Lord, that you you will draw them to yourself, that they may believe. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.